we sample overnight volatility and liquidity and we sample the previous day's volatility and liquidity and essentially that is what goes into our model and it has this incredible uh, ability to give us a probability of, of where the market is going to go. Welcome back to Top Traders Unplugged, where the best traders in the world come to share their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Now, let's rejoin the conversation with your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Welcome back to Top Traders Unplugged, where I continue my conversation with Alan Sheen, the founder and chief investment officer at Dalton Street Capital, a global systematic investment and research company based in Sydney, Australia. I want to dig obviously a lot deeper into your strategies and I think the best place maybe to begin is with the absolute return uh, strategy since this is something you uh, you know, uh, had been running before, I guess, uh, Dalton Street. So uh, can you go back and tell us about how this came about and, and, and kind of what the strategy is trying to capture? Hmm. So, the, so the strategy purely is the one that I mentioned before. I originally, this is my very first managed future strategy that I designed. I didn't know it was a managed future strategy at the time. And it was originally designed to hedge a basket of, and this sounds unusual now I, I, I repeat it, but this was the desire at the time, was to, to hedge a basket of Australian equities over the trading day in Australia. And uh, obviously the, the, at the time, the asset owner that I, I was working for uh, had, a, had a particular view, uh, didn't want to sell down their equity holding, just wanted to protect it during the day. Notwithstanding, I've since found out that, that more of the move in the Australian market happens overnight when it's closed, i.e. there's a huge gap overnight. But anyway, notwithstanding all that, uh, so I developed this hedging strategy and it was based on volatility and liquidity because I thought, gosh, well, if, I need, if, if this guy wants me to do a hedging strategy, uh, I think the tradition, all the traditional measures that I knew just wouldn't work. You know, PEs, dividend yields, all these long-term factors were never going to work. And uh, that's when I was you know, caught up with these guys called quants and they were talking about the VIX. And I thought, well, this is interesting. You know, volatility and liquidity. There must be something, you know, there may be something to that. Let's let's have a look at that and see if this has some sort of, I hate to use the word, but predictive capability. And I guess another observation I had, particularly in Australia, and it happens all across Asia, is the first thing that we hear on the radio, TV, or morning meeting, if you work for an investment firm, is it's the same thing every single day, and that is, what did the US do overnight? And this is what I, I figured out when I was reading Kahneman and Versky and you know, their studies on anchoring is, for better or worse, that's what we hear first thing in the morning and we anchor on mm. that number. And you and I know that that's an arbitrary number. It's, it's, it's completely meaningless. 
But I thought, and there was a traditional view in Australia that, okay, the US was up overnight, so therefore uh, Australia will be up the next day. Uh, the US was down overnight, Australia will be down the next day. And it, it's, it's very, very well known. Uh, I think I was told that very soon after coming into the industry, and I did a quick study. I thought, well, let's see what happens here. And sure enough, a uh, majority of the time, uh, Australia would be down uh, the day after the US being down overnight. But that was just the absolute index measure. And I found that there, there was very little predictive capability there at all because, as we know, the futures trade overnight. So there's no use me jumping in the next morning. You know, the US is down overnight. Well, I'll jump in short at the start of the day the next morning and I should be guaranteed to make money. But uh, as we know, that's probably already priced into the futures and uh, it didn't work very well at all. Um, so that's when I started looking more closely at the VIX. I thought, well, this is a behavioural bias. You know, instead of using a price-based model, and again, I, I had no real knowledge about trend-following futures other than the, the classic saying, the trend is your friend, but that was more so related to me in the sense of equities. And I, I started doing some studies on the VIX and volumes. I thought that there has to be something there on a short-term basis. If we're anchoring, I need a behavioural index rather than a price index. And to me, it was the, the volatility and volumes that um, that gave that. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I have, I have to say I haven't really come across a strategy in our space that doesn't focus on price first and foremost. So, so that is fascinating. Now, I guess the other thing that's uh, unique about it, so to speak, is the fact that you've, you focus on, on just uh, Australasia in terms of the markets, even though you could, I mean, I'm, my first inclination was if you were focusing on liquidity, why not trade the super liquid markets in, in the US? I, I tell you, if, if it worked, I'd be there doing it. Um, I've, I've tried to, to make this work in every asset class and in every geographic region. And okay. it just doesn't work. It, this is, is really, and this is a discussion I had with Mike Adam, it, it's, it is unique in this region that we, again, I, I come back to the pseudoscience of, of investment. It, it's, we're, we're, we're lazy. I, I hate to say it, but, but we really are lazy. We, we sit here, we hear the US is up or down, we go, okay, well, that's, that's problem solved. I don't really have to think about anything anymore. And it, it's, I think the other unique feature as well is, we receive our, our input signal. So we, we sample the overnight market and we sample our, the markets that we trade. So we trade six markets. Uh, we trade Australia, Japan, Korea, Hong Kong, Singapore and Taiwan. And they're the most liquid markets we can find in this region. Uh, so so we, we sample overnight's volatility and liquidity and we sample the previous day's volatility and liquidity. And essentially that is what goes into our model and it has this um, incredible uh, ability to, to you know, give us a probability of, of where the market is going to go. And, and it's, it's not so much where the market's going to go close to close, it's where it's going to go open to close. So, so we will enter all of those six markets uh, at the start of the trading day. We give ourselves a, a certain amount of time to, to enter the market and be fully positioned. And when we hold our position uh, for the entire trading day and we exit at the end of the trading day. And so we go home every night without any futures exposure whatsoever because essentially what we're doing is we're sampling a day 
and we're trading a day. And that's the, the simplicity behind it. But let me just uh, ask, just out of curiosity here, the, the fact that you know the, the liquidity and, 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 and the volume, uh, so to speak, but uh, I mean, where do you get the direction from? The direction actually is quite in, incredible. It, it it comes from a combination, because I've, I've tried a few different ways of trading this, this model, because we essentially, when we allocate our capital each day, uh, it's it's very, very simple. We trade a sixth, a sixth, a sixth, a sixth, and, and so on. We allocate a sixth of our money to each market. I've tried many, many uh, models, a vast a number of models to try and you know volatility weight or index weight or, or do something and I look I've just I just quickly found out that yeah I I'm able to figure out which way the market's going to go on a slightly better than 50% basis I, I'm, I'm just not smart enough to, to say which market's going to increase more than another on the day and most days, I'd say over, well, not I'd say, I know the numbers, over 65% of the time, we are either long all six markets or we're short all six markets. And then obviously the remainder, we could be long three, short three, long two, short four. And the direction actually comes out of the combination. So essentially it's a four-factor model. Um, we have the volatility and liquidity overnight on the US markets. And then we have the volatility and liquidity on those six markets. And it's actually the combination of those numbers uh, or th those inputs that actually gives you a direction. And it's it's quite in incredible because we, we, we run trend-following systems as well. And as you know, uh, the hit rate on a trend-following system is quite low. I think ours is you know, maybe somewhere around 35 40%, and everyone's high-fiving each other. Where this model runs on average, and we have ups and downs, of course, but on average it runs about a 56% hit rate, and, um, and with a very, very slight skew, whereas obviously our trend-following system has a very large skew. This has a, a very small skew, about 0.16. Yeah, so, so look, it's, it's actually the combination of volatility and liquidity that can actually provide you with a direction, and it is just a, a unique strategy. And it's, it's whilst uh, we, I, I mentioned the, the black box concept, we do have an element of black box because we only have a capacity in this fund of $500 million. Uh, that's that's Australian dollars as well, or Australian pesos, whatever you want to call it. Um, we're having a bit of a tough time against the US dollar at the moment. I think we're down around 67 or so. Yeah, not, not a good time to go on holidays from Australia, but great time to come to Australia on holidays. And uh, so, so there is, I would say, I, I'm happy to explain 95, 96% of what we do, but it's that four or five percent left over that we keep to ourselves with our trend following system uh no we we really do you know explain everything about what we do and even some of what i guess some of us and probably Dunn's the same we'd call proprietary um now we're, we're very happy to disclose what we do there because i think it comes back to the concept of of the discipline again i i mm -hmm. would in, in some ways and and i i say this facetiously i in some ways i'd be happy to print the print the uh, the rules on the front page of the, the Australian Financial Review or the Wall Street Journal and I think someone said this before, feel very comfortable that 99.9% .9 of people will not make money out of it mm -hmm. uh, because they don't have the discipline to follow it. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, I certainly... Uh come across that uh, in uh, you know over many many years uh, and and I also think that there's someone I can't remember who who said it but it's it's when you have a strategy that is behavioral based 
you can actually be, be quite transparent about it because the fact of the matter is what makes it work is that it's so bloody hard to do. So, yeah. uh, you know, that that's that's the trick. Well, um, I often say it to uh, the people I, I work with and have worked with for many years. So, you know, three quarters of our team, we've been working together. We were working together at Credit Suisse since 2011 um, and we had a, a new person join us. Uh, she had just finished her Master's of, of Quantum Physics at a uh, university here and, and I did explain to her when she joined us, said, what you have to understand here is is we do two of the hardest style of investing that I am aware of, and that is we run future strategies, both uh, trend following and uh, you know, volatility and liquidity, and our underlying collaterals in deep value. So you know, if you want a challenge, if you want a psychological challenge, uh, come and join us. Uh, if you don't feel as though that's quite right for you, it's we're probably not the right the right shopper and and we're very fortunate that two years later it's it's uh, it's the right shop for her absolutely mm. now i want to stay with the other component you said the other challenge and because it's it is unusual that the fact that you keep collateral in in an equity portfolio rather than what uh, the industry uh, does normally which is uh, some kind of short dated fixed income how do you separate when people look at your track record how do you separate the two you know return wise i mean i don't know how uh, exactly it 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 split but i mean can 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 the collateral kind of overshadow the the actual trading uh, results absolutely and we make it very clear to our clients where where the money does come from and and also you know how i guess how it it it's different to your traditional managed futures manager but how it's similar uh, for example you know looking at a number of managed futures managers now they carry what I guess I would describe as maybe a long equity bias, if that's a fair way of describing it. And a number of funds are carrying a reasonable percentage of of long equity exposure. So I think it's important to to, to make that clear to, to clients and 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 then break it out. So oh gosh, what's an example? So 2008 is a fantastic example. Um, like most managed futures managers, we did well. We 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 had a return of, of somewhere in excess of 50% uh, for that year. But gosh, it was a, a tale of, of two uh, investment classes. Our our futures uh, generated um, you know uh, just south of of 100%. Uh, but our equity basket uh, lost 40%. So yeah, whilst it would have been wonderful to be running a, a cash collateral for that year, um, you know, it, it was tough uh, for in the equity basket. And I think uh, if you look at the equity basket that we run for the Absolute Return Fund, because we manage uh, just six Asia-Pacific managed futures or futures contracts, we, we do match that off with the equity basket. So the equity basket is drawn only from uh, those same six countries that we trade. So, you know, it's, it's kind of a volatility matching strategy loosely, if, if I could put it that way. But then, you know, we have the advantage where we see that the, the, the payoffs are asymmetric. You know, we're, our best year in managed futures is just shy of 100%, but our, our worst year in managed futures was is still only, what, single digit off the top of my head? Whereas our best year in equities was... Uh, that would have been 09, where the equities returned about 40%. And uh, surprise, surprise, the worst year in equities was the year before. We were down about 40%. Uh, so, look, you, you do have experiences where one really does you know, cancel out a significant amount of the other. But we've had a, a great experience recently, which uh, it's only new to us, where historically... 
uh, if you look at our return profile, two-thirds uh, of the return comes from the uh, managed futures portion and one-third comes from the collateral. And when I conducted a study of uh, a number of, of well-known managed futures managers uh, over you know, at least a, a similar period to where we've been running this strategy, so 24 years, I quickly discovered that roughly two-thirds of their returns come from the managed futures strategy and one-third comes from the collateral, cash or bonds or whatever they're sitting in. I thought, oh, that's interesting. But it doesn't have the same correlation, I guess, relationship. And really, as I said, it was really just a, a happy accident that I ended up with this. So I had no knowledge of any relationship between equities and, and futures. I didn't even know about managed futures when I started trading managed futures. And, and over time, I've quickly found out that in just normal market periods, the two are uncorrelated. In periods of extreme high volatility or extreme low volatility, they'll become negatively correlated. So for the last three years, our managed futures have had a very similar experience to, to most managed futures. We've, we've been flat to down over the last three years. But what has dragged us through these last three years is that equity exposure. Mm -hmm. And we find, and I'm not so sure about offshore, but the clients in Australia uh, have been incredibly frustrated because many of them have started, they started allocating to manage futures, gosh, three or four years ago, thinking, oh, we're due for a crash, we're due for a crash. And they've missed out on all that equity upside. And I say to them, come with us and we'll give you that equity upside and hopefully we'll pick it up through the, the managed futures when we, we do have that crash, whenever that is. You know, I, I can certainly see that there's an interesting story for sure. Uh, there's an interesting um, argument for investors because you're right. I mean, a lot of people find it hard to replace equities with something else, you know, pure managed futures. So, uh, yeah, I guess that's part of your uniqueness. And, and as you said early on, and I think that's actually really important nowadays in terms of how we should be presenting ourselves and marketing ourselves. And that is just being very authentic. And, you know, if, if this is what, you know, Al and, and his team is, is doing, that's what you're doing. And you're not, uh, you're not shy to, uh, to, uh, to be different. And I think that's, uh, that's really refreshing to, uh, to hear. I also want to dig in a little bit deeper in, in, in the other strategy, which is a little bit closer to my home, which is kind of medium to long term uh, trend following, if, if I'm not mistaken. So, uh, so I'm interested in why you uh, kind of also have gone this way, because that's a lot more mainstream than, uh, than, than what you do in, in the absolute return strategy. So tell me a little bit about uh, how that came about and, and what you're trying to, uh, to do there. Maybe something different as well. Who knows? So the plan behind the business was to to eventually run three a minimum of three strategies. So so the the first and foremost will be the one with the longest term track record, which is our absolute return fund, uh, and but that has a a small capacity. Um, the second fund is the one that uh, the fund that we can actually you know, gather more assets over time, and that is structured to a medium term trend follower. Uh, I I had a chat or I had a number of, of chats and email interactions with a, a former former uh, guest on your program, uh, Andres Klenau. Mm -hmm. And uh, as I said to Andres, uh, we were talking about different strategies and asking me you know, what we do and how we do it. I said, well, you just read your own book and you'll have uh, probably 80% of it. Um, you know, average, average holding period, six weeks. Uh, average uh, loss period, two weeks. Average gain period, uh, what, 10, 11 weeks. Uh, we, we trade, what, 74 markets at the moment. 
and um, we run with a, a traditional you know, stop loss. In, in our case, we run a three ATR uh, stop loss. And uh, I guess the if you think of what we're doing that's slightly different is we just run our own version of a correlation matrix, uh, which allows us to, I guess, modulate for a better word, um, our, our risk size. So our standing risk size per trade is, is 20 basis points. And by overlaying the correlation matrix, it could move it up very, very slightly, maybe to, to 22 or 23. Uh, however, it, it will reduce it down you know, into the, the very, very low teens. And really, that's 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 what we're doing, and um, it's uh, and it's backed by equities as well. So in this case, uh, because we're running you know the seventy four individual contracts model, instead of looking at uh, the uh, MISCI uh, all countries Asia Pacific as as I guess the the pool that we draw our our equities from, uh, we draw equities from the MISCI World Index. So we have instead of twelve thousand stocks to choose from, uh, we have uh, what's that thirty five thousand stocks to choose from. And do you, so, so the actual collateral, do you invest in individual equities or do you just do ETFs or how do you actually do the collateral side? No, I've looked at this many, many times because the, the easiest option is, is just to, to stick it in ETFs or you could right. pick up a, a Miski World ETF for, I don't know, what, what are they charging these days? Four basis, four basis points, six basis points. Uh, that that would be the easy way to go. Um, however, we've, we've, we have a a quant model or a, a, a factor model for a better word and that uh, selects and ranks stocks and we have used that model well I've, I've used that model since the late 90s and I, I, I whilst I can say that I was the architect of our original uh, absolute return future strategy um, you know, using volatile and liquidity I can honestly say I stole the equity model and I stole it from uh, the, the well-known uh, book uh, Security Analysis uh, by Ben Graham and David Dodd and uh, this is another aspect of human behavior and this is what uh, Ben Graham observed uh, in Security Analysis and interesting I only just read it again uh, at the start of this year it's it's a it's a well, in my mind it's an enjoyable read again that probably is a little bit more insight into my personality than anyone else's and look it's he's, he's very clear where I think people most people know Ben Graham from the point of view of Warren Buffett oh okay Ben Graham he's a fundamental investor he was uh, Buffett's mentor at uh, I think it was Columbia University he gave him the only A plus and Ben Graham and obviously David Dodd, the co-author, do talk about a, a, I think it's seven or nine rules which will incorporate, you know, quality management and moat around the business and franchise. But but towards the end of the, the book, there's there's two very very interesting takeaways. One is that Ben Graham essentially, and I'm paraphrasing here, is if if you're a little bit shy and you don't like meeting people and getting out and talking to people, just use these three factors to select your equities and you'll receive the returns of all those seven or nine factors anyway. That was one. The second part, which really worked well for our futures model as well as the equity model, is, again, I'm paraphrasing here, but beware the man who approaches you with a very complex uh, algorithm to invest in equity markets or you know, any market or whatsoever. And that, that, that really stuck with me. So I, I just stole his model and it's been working really well since. I think on average, I think the index, if we, if we, we bought an ETF, I think our average 
yield would be somewhere around two or three percent. The yield of our portfolio is closer to five or six percent. And um, I think on average, we've outperformed the index by somewhere between three and five percent per annum. Uh, which I have, uh, it's it's funny actually, when in 2008, I had a raft of people coming to me asking, would you just run the futures model for us? Would you just run that? We don't want the equities anymore. We just want futures. I, I guess you could probably guess what they say these days now, Niels. Can, can you just cut out that managed futures part and just run an equity portfolio <laughs> for us? Yeah, guys, it's it's a, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a deal that you, you have to accept both uh, because yeah. you know, this will generate the best return for you. And, and as I explain to the clients and, and with both funds, as I say, look, if, if you want to allocate uh, to a managed futures manager and a deep value manager, well, you'd have to allocate, say, $100 to one, $100 to another, and pay fees on both, where all you need to do is allocate only $100, and we'll take care of both for you. And and believe it or not, you know, managers uh, can can actually perform well in, in both asset classes. And when you think about what we do, Niels and, and Dunn do, you know, we're looking at, I think, you know, 50 or 74 asset classes that we're, we're managing for a better word. Um, and we can seem to, we seem to manage those okay. And I think uh, people lose sight of the fact and it comes back to the principles of engineering. If you have principles of investing and like if you're building a plane or, or a bridge, if you follow those principles religiously, uh, you should have a, a, a you know the the desired outcome that you're looking for. No, absolutely. I'm mean, also interested in in sort of your your general view. I mean, obviously you run two very different uh, models, and uh, but you can go outside your own models in general. But but I'm interested in this. Um, idea of model decay uh, I know we talked about that a lot of the principles behind what you do and what what you know the managed futures industry do is is based on on behavior uh, human behavior so we don't think necessarily that 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 will change however I've also come across a lot of people in the shorter term space who definitely say that they have model decay and they need to continue to develop new models to keep up what what's your kind of what's your sense uh, on on this and 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 is it something you need to to uh, also do on your side uh, for any of the things you do yeah it's it's an interesting one I well, I think I've been coming across the term model decay since 2009 or 2010, I was never asked a question about it before, which was was very interesting. And mm. the studies that that I and the team have conducted is is model decay is a real thing. It it really is there. However, what we've found is that model decay and whether it's a firm that's that's blown up for a better word or, or or other firms that the model decay occurs significantly in strategies that are risk based. And not behavioural. Uh, just every behavioural strategy we look at, and obviously the main ones are the volatility and liquidity strategies that we look at. Um, they are the trend-following strategies or momentum strategies. Whilst we can go for, for many years, which was evidenced in the, I think it was AQR conducted the century of trend following and CFM two centuries of trend following. Mm, and yeah. then another, yeah, another um, guest on your your program, uh, Alex Grayson and, and Katie Kaminsky, was it? 800 i'm probably getting it wrong yeah, I think there they I? went back to 800 years in in their book for their book yeah 
Yeah, yeah, and it's it's clear. It's very clear. There, there's no question about it. It's there's a reason. You know, I, I always say there's there's a reason for sayings. You know, there's always the joke about you know the mother-in-law being an absolute dragon to deal with. It's because most mother-in-laws are dragons to deal with. Um, when you talk about trends are your friends, it's because you know, that's where you can make money. Uh, but you have to put up with your mother-in-law, and you have to put up with periods of. Uh, what's the better word, underperformance in our strategy. And that's how you make your money. You you muscle through it. You muscle through Christmas with your mother-in-law. Um, you muscle through the tough periods in our strategy. And it's like, uh, I think back to my, my sporting days, um, you know, I often say I'm, I'm not very good at many things. Uh, there's probably a, only two things I'm good at now, and that's value investing and, and manage futures. But when I was younger, I, I wasn't the greatest natural sportsman but I had a mentality about myself of not stopping I always think of that for the Forrest Gump movie where he scores the touchdown and keeps running through the cheerleaders and out and, and out of the stadium and that was very much my mentality hopefully with a slightly higher IQ of course and I, it's, it is it's just muscling through and you have to have the wherewithal and you have to be aware of what you can what you can take as well I I um I spent many years as a, a cyclist as, as a track cyclist uh, that was one of my chosen sports and you know how fast you can go around that track to some extent is how far you can lean over in the corner and we all know the only way to find out how far you can lean over is to fall off so I had no problem falling off uh, at the bottom of the track or the top of the track and once you hit that point great I know how far I can go where you I found a lot of people were, were too frightened to fall off and maybe that comes back to that Forrest Gump IQ again. I'm not quite sure, Niels. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as, but the, as they say, actually, in the, which is another reason why rules-based in the strategies are, 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 you know, are worth considering, is that that uh, scientifically it's proved that when we are under stress, we lose, I think it's 13% of, of, of our IQ, and, and therefore you could say it's nice to have something to hold on to and not make very important decisions. Um, you know, at a lower level of, of IQ. So, mm. uh, yeah. No, I agree with that with my military training as well. It's, you know, people talk about, oh, you know, military or, or army, they're, they're dumb or they're, they're not creative in their thinking. Uh, no, absolutely not. These are rules. You know, when, you, when mm. you're in the height of war, uh, you can't think of any greater stress. I, I still remember um, periods, I spent a lot of time, my time in um, in fast jets and uh, and uh, some, some unusual situations where, by uh, it was extreme stress you you do have that feeling of your life flashing before your eyes and my response was to follow what i had in front of me because this these were principles of aerodynamics in in that case that will take you out of the <laughs> the, the, the very uncomfortable situation that you're in and and to the point where uh, for me and a lot of the time the pilot is there, there's no looking out there, there's no looking up trying to figure out what's going on um, you just look at your you, you, the, the true source of truth which is your instruments and to me that's that's systematic trading that's 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 technical that's that's the very essence of following what you have rather than looking around and wondering, oh, I wonder what the market's going to do today. Or I heard that the US was down overnight or I heard that the dollar's moving or you know, Trump's going to tweet something. 
um, follow the rules. And I think if what concerns me the most, particularly in our industry, is, is when people say, you know, they. funnily enough, I think the loudest calls of the death of trend following was, what, at the end of last year almost? Uh, and then we've, we've had this wonderful year, is I'm thinking, gosh, if, if you're not going to invest the way, oh gosh, this is, sounds like commercial for us, but if you're not going to invest it the way we do in a systematic manner, well, you know, good luck with anything else because it's not repeatable. Yeah, yeah. And going back to that uh, story about the military and, 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 and the engineers having to go on the plane after they fix the engine, I'm not so sure they do that in commercial airlines, but I do like the concept. I think it'd be worthwhile introducing it. Oh, it's it's in, it's in alignment of interest. It's funny, we, we do talk about it because fees are obviously a, a discussion all the time uh, yeah. and alignment of interest. But the, the, the literature is very clear, and I'm sure you've come across this as well, uh, Niels. It, the literature is very clear that the higher fee charging managers are the higher performing managers on an after fee basis. And you know, there's a, there's a recent study here in Australia by a, a, it's called the CSIRO, which is a, a research institute and the Monash University, and that was only done a couple of years ago, and, and it's it's reinforced a number of previous studies that you know you really need to go for the managers that are charging the higher fees. It's it's very very clear based on the the empirical evidence. Yeah. So how have you balanced staying on fees? I mean, how have you? Balance it on 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 your side. I mean, I'm not a big fan of of of, of these cheap, you know, replicators of flat fee product. So we're on the same side on that, I think. But what's what's the fair balance nowadays? I I was interesting. I was just speaking to a, a former colleague of mine at Credit Suisse. They're now at um, they're now at Goldman Sachs. And Goldman Sachs are doing a, a number of replication products, and uh, and I asked to see the returns, and and uh, he was kind enough to to show me the returns and and where the returns came from, and uh, I, I must admit I, I wasn't surprised that one they underperformed on an after fees basis, two they missed most of the big runs that we've seen recently, mm. natural gas emissions. Gosh, there was a couple of others as well. Coffee recently, you know, the the, the, the they, they picked up the bonds. That was okay. They they picked up the stirs as well, but those big outliers like emissions and natural gas, they they just didn't capture them. It's as simple mm-hmm. as that. Um, that's one. Two. I have to question when a an established managed futures manager um, decides to offer a lower fee product. Uh, you know, are you receiving the best work are you receiving the best ideas I, I don't know I don't I don't have the transparency into those those firms we, we certainly don't do it ourselves but I just think of it as a business manager where am I putting my best ideas mm. where am I putting yeah. my best staff uh, and applying the research It's an interesting topic and it's something that obviously has been quite evident in our industry for the last few years and I'm sure it will stay there. But yeah, I guess you you get what you pay for often in life and I think with our business it's kind of the same. But I also want to, before we kind of start to to wrap up our conversation, I want to touch on research. Research is always an interesting topic, of course. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your kind of your research process. Obviously, you've got a, a good team you've been with for, for a while. Because there's this debate, 
you know that 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 often investors want to see you evolve, but they don't want to see you to change. So how do you think about research in general? Sure. And look, I uh, I'm happy to send you uh, my my chart that I've done, Neil's. I, I probably wouldn't distribute it too much further. I just <laughs> I've just done a simple chart again of, of managers who have been uh, managing portfolios for for twenty odd years, like we have, and just a, a simple uh, bar graph of. Uh, their funds under management, uh, their staff numbers, and their returns. Oh, and also, as well as I can figure out, the PhDs they have. Because as you'd know, there's a, people, uh, asset allocators love to know how many PhDs you have. And I think, gosh, you know, what are those 50 PhDs doing there? I just cannot think. And, you know, you think, oh, there's a guy, you know, with a background in, in astrophysics. And then there's another guy with a background in, you know, extragalactic astrophysics, because, you know, the, our, our universe wasn't enough for him. He had to go outside of that. And I think, well, no, no, it's, it, it's, it's the mentality of, again, it's, it's like my lawyer friend, you know, I argue because I'm a lawyer. No, 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 you, you, you became a lawyer because you argue. So they're the sort of people that you're wanting to bring into your firm. You, you don't need someone with a degree in, in extragalactic astrophysics physics or in in our case we're all a group of, of engineers uh, quantum physicists mathematicians computer scientists yeah gosh no we, we don't need that we, we don't need that horsepower we need the mentality we absolutely need the mentality in, in fact uh, one of our, our employees uh, one of our staff members and, and all of our employees are also partners in the business uh, their, their their father runs a quite a large fundamental investment shop and uh, he was very keen uh, for his child to work with them. And, uh, but, but it was very clear to the child who had you know, studied a, a science that it's probably not the way I go about thinking uh, about you know, investments. So uh, we were very fortunate enough to, to pick that person up. And it's interesting. We, we were always asked that question, how can four people compete against a large firm of, yeah, of 400 people. And I just look at the numbers. I just show them the numbers and say, look, we've been running this strategy for, for you know, over 20 years. Uh, the maximum amount of people I've ever had on the strategy was uh, five, including myself. Uh, running a trend following system, you know, a, a alongside that most of the time as well. And those same five people were were working alongside that. And I said, look, the, the returns, it's, it's, you know, it's very, very clear that what happens is once you generate more fun and therefore employ more people, or, or it could be vice versa, you've employed more people to generate more fun, you go from running a fund to running a business. And I... I'm completely okay with that. You you have to make that decision in your career or in the aspect of your business. So, um, look, we we really it's interesting. For example, with the absolute return fund, people say, "Oh, you know, you've been running this for a long time. Um, what sort of enhancements have you done to this over time?" And I say, "Well, we basically haven't done any." Uh, this is a behavioural strategy, and in the last 24 years, I haven't seen my own behaviour or other humans' behaviour change to the extent that I want to change the strategy. Uh, that doesn't mean we haven't done thousands upon thousands of optimizations or whatever you want to call it to see if there's a better way of running the strategy. But in the, the day, you know, we get in on open, we get out on close. We, you know, there's not a whole lot of ways to to do this strategy. Trend following, on the other hand, uh, yeah, look, we, we look at everything from, you know, should we be only 
you know, managing uh, contracts in, in six markets? Should we be doing it in 20 markets? Should we be doing it in 206 markets? And again, it, it doesn't make a whole lot of difference. The, the research we've found is should be we, we be running on a 50-day breakout, a 20-day breakout, a 120-day breakout, a crossover strategy. It's incredible, as, as you would know with Dunn and, and your own experience, they all generate very, very similar returns over time. I guess maybe the faster moving stuff, probably not so much now. The, the sort of five and 10 day uh, trend following strategies we've we found that have there's been a little bit of decay there. But again, we're only talking uh, you know 30 or 40 years worth of research on, on these strategies. Uh, we could be just having a bit of a tough time. You know, as we know, bonds have been going, what, one direction for, for what, 30 years or something? I think it is now. Japan went one direction for 30 years. We really need a lot more data on that. So um, we, I, I have a very simple... I guess, management philosophy as well. And it's, it's a bit of a crude statement. My father used to say, um, you know, dad studied for many years to, to, to earn his, his qualifications. And then uh, within three years, they promoted him to management. And he said, I, I did all that study to become a clerk for 40 years. And I said, well, how, how did you, you deal with that, Dad? And he, he, he often said, and it's a bit of a crude statement, he says, well, well I, you know, I'm not going to hire a dog and bark myself. He says, I, I let people do the job. I hire people who are competent. Um, and look, it's a military term and, and he uses it. Um, tell people what needs to be done, or sorry, what, what needs to be done, not how to do it. Mm-hmm. And they will amaze you every time with their intellect and ingenuity. So I, I let my staff go and do what they want. And my performance review, people say you should have management meetings once a month or whatever period of time. I have an annual uh, performance review with them and it lasts a good two and a half seconds, two and three quarter, oh, sorry, two and a half minutes, two and three quarter minutes. And I just asked them, what are you doing that you enjoy? What are you doing that you don't enjoy? What do you want to do more of? What do you want to do less of? And it's it's quickly done. I, you, you hire, you know, you just hire people who have the competence, the intellectual curiosity and the personality to fit in with the other team members. And um, yeah, we, we've been, I've been very fortunate that, you know, that sort of management styles worked with the sort of people that I've employed. Uh, it's always a little bit more difficult when you do inherit teams. Uh, I, I inherited a team of 40 staff at one stage when I was chief investment officer of a, of a large organization here in Australia. And, and that was a little bit more challenging. But, but once they realize that, you know, you believe and trust in them, a little bit like your children. You know, they'll, they'll try every now and then to, to test you and, and see how much dad will put up with. Um, but yeah, you, you, like a child, like your children, you, you let them go and let them go and you, you let them make their own mistake. And then they'll come back and go, oh, okay, yeah, okay, this guy is actually being completely reasonable. I'll, I'll work within the bounds that, are, that appear to be in place. Yeah. No, absolutely. Something I also wanted to gauge your thought of, again, a topic that comes up and has been been quite present i think in recent years uh, maybe not so well maybe still uh, at this time and that is the term crisis alpha i know you you uh, mentioned katie kaminsky uh, uh, i think who coined the phrase and we love her on the show of course mm-hmm. but i have to say personally i think it's a challenging term for our industry um, because i think it's lent people to believe that we are a hedge uh, rather than an uncorrelated return stream. But I wanted to kind of your thoughts on, on this sort of crisis alpha term in general. What what do you think? I think uh, ultimately, I, I have no problem with the term. I, I, I don't have too many problems with a lot of terms. It's, it's just the definition of the term. 
that's that's all it is and it's like um you know volatility or standard deviation or var what's what's the definition of what they mean i remember i was fortunate enough to meet the person who for a better word invented var and and took it to jp morgan i think it was and you know the, the whole idea behind VAR it was a 14-day risk <laughs> measure, and uh, gosh, I don't know of anyone using it as a 14-day risk measure. Um, so it's the definition. So when it, when I heard the term crisis alpha, and a, a lot of our clients or potential clients started talking about this crisis alpha, and and why weren't you know for example when was it the last quarter of last year, people were wondering why we weren't up when the markets were down. And what happened to this crisis alpha? And I think you've probably heard a few people say, well, yes, if we were correction alpha, you'd be quite within your rights to be annoyed. But um, we've yet to see a crisis for some time. Um, look, I'm, I'm okay with the term as far as you know what a person's definition of it is. That's that's my takeaway. The broader question is is the correlations. Um, I don't know if you have this experience, Niels, but we have it all the time. Is you can explain non-correlation many, many times to the same people and when you meet them again, they describe negative correlation to you again. And you're just going, well, I'm pretty sure I remember the conversation we had. It's, it's again, I think it comes back to, and I know this is going to sound intellectually, you know, I'm trying to be intellectually superior, but it, it's not the case. It's, it's just a simple fact of, you know, principles of investment. And we just don't seem to have the, the principles of investment behind us. We have a, a lot of disparate opinions and a lot of people who just listen, you know, read in the media, you know, uh, listen to colleagues and not think and do their own research. Interesting enough, um, we've been asked a lot recently because like most managed future strategies, we, we do a little bit of when volatility's high. And we've had a lot of people coming to us saying, oh, volatility's high, we're at record high of volatility. I'm going, my gosh, where, where are you hearing this? Oh, let me send you the article. And uh, I've had many articles sent to me and uh, I there's absolutely, in every article, there is absolutely no evidence for the statement of of increased volatility and on this and you often, i often just just send them the vix chart and just say look well, here's the simple answer and they say no but this this person is is swearing that um, you know volatility is at all time highs and but again it comes back to definition what i did uncover is that there is a an area of volatility that is at almost highs and that's cross-sectional volatility uh, in Australia, at least. So mm-hmm. obviously the volatility between stocks in an index. And I thought, ah, okay, so somewhere someone has found out that cross-sectional volatility is high and people have just taken that as volatility is at all-time highs. Why aren't you guys making you know, huge amounts of money and why haven't you been doing it for, I think, two years, two and a half years that cross-sectional volatility has been high? But we'd expect that, wouldn't we? Because you're seeing some of the largest companies in the world, you know, Apple and the like, you know, they'll be up 10% on a day or down 10% on a day where, you know, showing my age when GE and Exxon, you know, other than, you know, an oil spill or something, you would never contemplate these these companies moving 10% up or down on a day. Uh, a 3 or 4% move was a, was a massive move. So, um, yeah, it comes back to definition. So if I hear the term crisis alpha, I say, well, what's, what's your definition of, of crisis before we, we start mm. that conversation? 
Yeah, no, that's that's a fair point. Let me finish off with a couple of sort of uh, more general maybe, but also something that might lend a little bit to uh, the listener getting even more of your uh, personality out while we uh, have our conversation here. You know, it is always hard, uh, I'm sure, and I don't think necessarily the job of investors have become easier. I think actually it's it's really hard to decipher between, you know, managers and, and so on and so forth. So in your opinion, what are some of the, the better questions uh, investors should be asking both themselves, but certainly also managers uh, right now? Yeah, so what I find is a lot of investors uh, actually... I find, I don't know whether they're afraid or they don't want to offend the manager, but I think they should be asking more personal questions. Right. Because whilst we run systematic strategies, at the end of the day, we are still human. And we have the ability to override, change, enhance, for a better word, our strategies. Um, We don't have to follow these strategies in any way so i think it's very important to to ask some personal questions because that example i I told you about the cars the the high performance cars um that's a significant difference in performance of managers and so i i would be asking my manager or my potential manager everything from yeah what car do you drive uh, what do you do in your free time? What sports do you play? What, I guess, what your uh, simple one for me too is is when you gamble. You know, let's say you go to a casino or you know, do you punt on the horses? Uh, is uh, is there any proclivity there to to take unmeasured risk? And I still remember um, when I first, you know, having spent so much time in a um, in an asset manager, uh, it's a little bit like working in a library and everyone's quite, you know, considered, I guess, for a better word. And then when I joined uh, Credit Suisse and I was, you know, walking through to the bubble that, you know, the glass room that the prop traders worked in, but yeah, I had to walk through the, the trading floor. I would, I would have to say every third or fourth desk had the horse racing guide on it. And I thought, whoa, okay, so these people are advising fund managers on what to buy and sell. This is incredibly concerning. And look, part of it is probably my own proclivity to gambling as well. I, I've actually never gambled a dime in my life. And uh, it comes from my background. I, I Unless uh, I can measure the odds in some way, I, I would never put money on a horse race or put it on a table at a casino or, or anything like that. And I know a lot of people do when I, I say that, they say, well, hang on, you gamble every day, don't you? <laughs> and I said, well, no, it's your definition of gambling. I, I certainly trade and invest, but um, if, if I wasn't doing the research, I'd, I'd call that gambling. So I, I think really... You need to ask the personal questions. Um, yeah, what car do you drive? That's a uh, good insight to um, how you think, and also again um, the importance. And of course, you know, behind every model there's a person, so uh, we definitely need to get the personal side as well. Yeah, and also I, I think you need to ask about ego as well. I, I often tell people, as a fund manager, is your ego more attached to being the largest fund manager or the highest performing fund manager? Sure. 
Sure. Yeah, I think yeah. I think that's a, a really simple question because at the end of the day, our egos drive so much of what we do, and and so much of it is unconscious. So, yeah. um, who do you want to yeah. be, the highest performing or the the largest manager? Or both? You never or know. Both. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let me finish off before we completely lose your voice here. Let me finish off with something that I um, I've only tried with a, a couple of people, but um, I think it it might be uh, fun to hear. So it's kind of uh, you finishing uh, this sentence if 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 you if you can. And the sentence goes: I know I'm being successful when. When do you feel you're being successful? Uh, well, I. I often think as parents, we people say, what do you want for your children? And most people say, I want them to be happy. And I think that's a, that's a terrible goal. That's an absolutely terrible goal for your child because you have very little control over your happiness in many situations. So when I look at success for my children and therefore myself, I think, how, do I have a purpose? Do I have a purpose in my life? Am I pursuing that purpose and do I feel as though I am meeting the the goal of what I think that purpose is? And, and for me, um, my, my purpose in, in my professional career is, you know, looking at my ego, um, is generating the highest returns for clients to allow them to achieve a greater quality of either life or retirement or, or whatever it is they're looking for or, or what they want to do with their money. And yeah, I look at that with my children as well. I, I, some people say, oh, you don't want your children to be happy? I say, well, I, I have no doubt that if, if they have purpose and, um, and they're achieving or pursuing that purpose, maybe not even achieving anything great, but if they, if they have that purpose, I, I have no doubt they'll be happy and they'll have greater control over their happiness as well because just just being happy to me sounds like a very arbitrary, arbitrary uh, desire for your children and obviously for yourself as well. Absolutely. Purpose is very important. On that note, let's wrap up this fascinating uh, conversation. Al, thank you so much for being on the podcast and for sharing your thoughts and experiences with me. It's been fascinating to, to hear your views. And as I often say, uh, I think it's so important that practitioners like yourself share these ideas because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change happens. I hope you were able to take something away from today's conversation onto your own investment journey. And if you did, please share these episodes with your friends and colleagues and send us a comment or leave us a voicemail to let us know what topics you want us to bring up on the upcoming conversations with industry leaders in the rules-based world of investing. From me, Niels Kastelarsen, thanks for listening. And I look forward to being back with you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged. And in the meantime, go check out the show notes for this episode and all the resources that you can find on our website. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.